Hello listeners, welcome to HIV in Focus, a podcast series created by Gilead Sciences to explore the most pressing issues for people living with HIV and to provide practical bite-sized tips for clinicians from experts in the field. I am Dr. Naomi Sutton, I'm a consultant physician in sexual health in Rotherham and I will be the host of this series. I've been lucky enough to have a number of media roles including the sex clinic on E4 and I try to use my media platforms for education to educate the wider public on all topics related to sex. I am absolutely delighted to introduce today's podcast, which is Driving Equity for All. And I have the totally wonderful Vanessa Appiah, um, who's joining me to chat. Vanessa, over to you. Please introduce yourself. Oh, thank you, Naomi. Great to be here. So I'm um, Vanessa Appiah. Um, I'm a consultant in sexual health and HIV in East London. And I'm also an honorary senior lecturer at Queen Mary University, London, and I work in the EDI space um, within the university. So we're going to talk today about health inequalities, kind of how they arise, and then talk about what we can do. So some tangible changes of what we can do in clinic that hopefully don't cost any money. Definitely. So, but Vanessa, can you start with giving us a broad overview of how did we get to where we are now with our health inequalities? Yeah, and I think a good place to start is really what are health inequalities? And I always describe them as systematic, unjust and avoidable differences in outcomes or opportunities for people to have good health. And when you look at that and you look at how you create systematic and unjust and avoidable differences, it comes in many different layers. So We talk about our social determinants of health. So we talk about education, housing, jobs, etc. But then there's a step upstream of that about all the policies and structures in place that then determine those social determinants of health. Around in that, when you look at those structures and you look look at um, how they've evolved, there's a clear place of um, hierarchy. So you've got mm. social hierarchies, you've got political hierarchies, you've got economic hierarchies, and embedded in that, you've got racism. And racism is one, is one of those core and social hierarchies. And we are socialized to not accept difference and to see that if there is difference, there's differential power there. So it's power, it's money, and all of these then determine the policies that determine society. And then that then determines health and opportunities for good health. And I guess what's interesting to me is you can have as many policies as you, as you want, mm-hmm. but it's the individuals really that matter, especially on a one-to-one, mm-hmm. what we're talking about in clinic. It's our one-to-one judgy selves, I suppose, isn't it? So we need to park whatever judgments we may have about mm-hmm. certain sexualities, race, all those other things, and and really try and walk in those people's shoes and try and understand it better. Well, definitely, because... You know, I always say that, you know, most structures are made for the majority and not the minority. And that can be a minority in many different spheres. And so for you to make sure that every person is seen, is valued, is advocated for, you've got to you've got to actively and intentionally seek and see them. Do you see what I mean? And I think that 
it, it brings up the whole concept of um, recognizing that in someone's life, there are many different systems of potential oppression that can be operating. And that can be related to sex, gender, sexuality, ability and disability, um, education, etc. So all of and class, particularly. So all of those in one individual can combine and intersect to really determine one's lived experience and then again their health and opportunity to have better health as well. And I I guess as well it's about not presuming you understand their life either so for example you're a black African woman we were talking about this earlier weren't you? Yeah. You had a very different lifestyle to another black African woman living within the UK didn't you? Completely so you know I always say that I think you know, representation is so important and making sure that you bring people um, to the table and give them a voice and have real inclusion and not mainly tokenistic um, engagement, but really including people. You've got to recognise that amongst black people, amongst black women, there will be definite shared vulnerabilities and definite shared experiences, but everyone has their individual lived experience. So I was uh, born in the UK, but my family um, originally from Ghana. My mum was a nurse. My dad was in the Navy and engineer by trade. So already from that, um, I was born into a family that had opportunity you see, and my when I look at my family, you know, it's there's a real um, representation of differential opportunity, and so my experience as a black woman in East London is very can be very different to another black woman in East London that is living in a council estate. You know, it, it is really different, and I think it's about being respectful of those differences and acknowledging it, and we may actually have very similar lives or we may have very different lives, but you've actually got to give us the space to let you know what that is rather than just simply assuming. Yeah. So I guess it's seeing beyond the labels, beyond the categories. Exactly. And I guess a very similar, you know, uh, men who have sex with men, some men will have experienced um, judgmental attitudes. Other men will not have experienced the same. I'm a white heterosexual woman most of my life in York. And I went to school. I think there was one, uh, one child of colour mm. within our entire school. Mm. So I think for, from my point of view, and that may maybe other people listening, is that sometimes I'm fearful of putting my foot mm. in it or mm. making myself sound like a total <laughs> idiot. So sometimes I think people avoid those situations or they, you avoid conversations. It, well, yeah, completely. And, you know, it it all stems from, it is that, recognition of difference and when you start to talk about difference you sit in discomfort <laughs> you know mm. there are uncomfortable conversations because inherently when some, something is different you don't fully understand it so then you have to explore it and how do you do it in a respectful way but then also gain understanding and I, I always say that I think silence is worse when we don't have those conversations and we don't even try to create safe spaces and safe, respectful spaces, we cause more harm than good because it is about thinking, right, and allow people to feel confident to say, you know what, I may get it wrong, but yeah. I also think by me asking, I'm going to be better in the future. Yeah, um, And I totally. think that is really important. And I, I remember, I mean, I've, I've, well, I, regularly put my foot in things but I've mm. never had a complaint ever mm. from anybody because I'm totally open by going I am so sorry yeah when I first started in sexual health 
I couldn't work out when you're talking to men who have sex with men about how to describe which type of anal sex they exactly. have. So I just go, I'm really sorry. I don't know how to explain this to you, but I need to ask, do you put your willy in his bum yeah. or does he? And they just laugh at me and go, oh, do you mean top or bottom? And so again, I think if you're open and honest, yeah. when you're discussing any kind of sensitive issue, people will take it in the right way. Exactly. And I think it's all about how you position it as well, because, you know, you ask someone's about pe- someone's faith. And, you know, yeah. what does what does your faith mean to you? And then how does that impact your life? Because for some people, you know, there's an assumption that, you know, someone's a Pentecostal Christian. So that definitely means that, you know, they're not going to take their therapy and stuff like that. But actually, mm-hmm. their faith is important to them, but they are very clear about um, their need to take medication and, and yeah. the, the church and that space is a support system. Do you see what I mean? But you will all know, you will only understand that if you ask respectfully and say, I want to understand more so that I can support you more. Because I think that's the thing that we're not asking to be nosy. We're not asking, you know, just to probe for no reason. We're asking because if we are going to give the best care that you deserve, we need to understand you in your entirety and not just the snapshot that we see in clinic. Because, you know, we do see a snapshot within clinic. I totally agree. I think it's the way we frame it. So Mm -hmm. I always, when I'm talking to medical students, I say, don't ask a question unless you can back up why you've Mm -hmm. asked it. Mm -hmm. So if you're asking how old your partner, for example, there's no point asking a 59-year-old how old's your partner, Mm. you know, unless there's other worries. Or frame it in, look, I just want to get a bit more of an idea about who you are and Mm -hmm. what makes you tick. Can I ask about your religion, for example? Completely, because I think that understanding and exploring are key steps key steps in trusted relationships and you know we do that in our everyday relationships um you know Mm -hmm. how do we how do we know that we're gonna you know think about having more intimacy with our partner or whatever we're gonna say we're going to you ask more questions you know Mm. and you you get to know the person and you allow them to say things without recrimination hopefully Mm. (laughs) and I think that we often in health for a number of reasons we could do better at that yeah Mm. and I guess we've discussed race and um, sexuality but again wealth and poverty is a a huge issue for a lot of our patients socioeconomic status class all of those functioning day-to-day and financial resources determines everyone's um, everyday life Um, Mm. and it and it like many things not only affects um their ability for um nutrition their uh, ability to engage their quality of life to do to do things um you know extracurricular things outside of work if they even have work all mm. of that on top of if you've already living a life in which you feel discriminated against and you are um walking in a life that um you feel that you are um, not valued in the world. And then on top of that, you've got um, financial difficulties and you're not sure how you're going to feed yourself or your your family, those that you're caring for. You're not sure how you're going to support, engage with your family that may not be living in the country. All those features completely can devastate people's lives. Um, Mm -hmm. And so then when you're then asking, you know, bringing it back to the healthcare space. And then you're asking someone about, are you taking your treatment, um, whether you're coming to clinic? And they're like, 
I can't even sleep. I don't even know how I'm going to come into clinic. And actually, my health isn't my priority at the moment. Um, And you wouldn't know that unless you explored it. But also allowing them to be honest and open and say, I'm finding life really difficult now. And, you know, I, I always say that your your consultation um, with your doctor, uh, with your nurse, with your um, GP, etc. I often feel that people um, don't realise how much power they have there. And the, the, the consultation is for you to say how your life is changing and how that person in front of you needs to change the support for you, you know, because all our lives are um, dynamic. And so it's what is important is that people are allowed to say life is difficult I'm finding this difficult to do or I need this support in this area or actually for someone to say life is good and they can share it and so you can understand why life is good so that in in the future if things change you can then remind them you know life was better then what was in place then that made life better and how can we help you get back there and I think I, when we were talking earlier, you talked about asking how many good days you've had in mm. the last week and then what a good day means to you. And I like that. Well, exactly. You know, we all talk about, you know, living your best life and all of that. But, um, you know, what, what my best life is could be completely different to what your best life is, Naomi. And like, um, and so if I'm there and I'm, I'm on paper and I'm saying to someone, you should be so happy, you know, life is so much better. You're on treatment, you know, you're supported and et cetera. Um, well, no, because you don't. You need to know what is important to me and what what my best life is, and then I will say to them, "Okay, actually, yes, I completely get that." Um, and you can reshape things for them, and then it's that that concept of what is good health, and is it simply the absence of disease? Or yeah. is it the quality of life and health and well-being wrapped up in that? So your mental health, your physical health, and so many things determines one an individual's concept of mental well-being and physical well-being. So it is about working out what is their best life. And it's really interesting, Vanessa, because every podcast that we've done so far, we're all talking about this holistic mm. attitude to everyone and letting people talk and language and, you know, all, all these themes are coming out. I think probably as HIV physicians, I think we're probably some of the best mm-hmm. at doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't mean that we can't get better we can always get better i think and and, um and language is so important because when you're acknowledging difference and you're talking about disparities and you want to um intervene again key to that is respectfully exploring and then also allowing people to communicate what's going on in their lives and also empowering them to do that. And, and language is crucial because language can activate someone to say, as say, right, no, actually I need this. I'm not happy with this. This is, this is difficult. Or it can just put someone down and make them shrink in a corner. And we talk about hierarchies, you know, the, the clinician, whether it's a doctor, nurse, um, any healthcare professional um, patient dynamic, there's a clear hierarchy there. I can talk about times when I've been in a hospital and I'm always so surprised about how suddenly in that space you just come completely disempowered and you forget what you want to say and you don't advocate for yourself as much. And that's someone that is privileged to be in my position. So, you know, and that's when I always think, then how do our patients feel? How does my family feel when they go and interact with healthcare? Um, 
And when we do talk about language, it, it reminds me of, you know, wonderful advocate in my clinic in East London, where we support people to engage in care. It was always called the lost to follow up clinic, you know, and I, she reminded me that, you know, that's a disempowering name. And it's about how you as a service need to be more accessible and to um, reach those patients. And so it's think a bit ra rather than the need to find clinic. And again, that shift in language, you know, it may seem a small thing to people, but it, it, it really contributes to shifting power. And as I said in the beginning, that's how we have inequalities and inequity and experience because there is differential power. So whenever there's an opportunity to shift, share power, foster true inclusion and belonging, that's where we'll see change and that's where we'll tackle um, inequalities. My husband's a GP and when he started, I mean, he's been GP for, well, too many years now. Um, when he started at his practice, he had all these what we would have termed heart sink patient, which sounds dreadful, doesn't it? And they were all going to A&E with abdominal pain or this, that and the other and round the houses. And they were just having a really bad life. Mm. And so he just kept bringing them back. Obviously, GPs have 10 minutes and he go, right, your 10 minutes is up. Off you go, come back next week and we'll have another chat. Mm. And he found that lo lots of these patients who were utilising health services for all sorts of problems, they just needed someone to talk to who mm. was just there for them and to listen. And so I think it, it's about empowering clinicians to realise that just sitting and listening and understanding and being an ear mm. can do so much good. We don't always need to find a solution. We can just empathise and say, this sounds really totally dreadful mm -hmm. you know I'm so sorry mm. and sometimes that can be enough acknowledgement is is so key and I think that um when we again you know reinforcing um silence perpetuates um mm. they're they're all difficult conversations difficult conversations and with many things that you may not be able to relate to as for yourself as an individual so then you're thinking gosh how do I how do I broach this how do I move forward with this but mm. they are uncomfortable situations but is it actually even harder to live it <laughs> so you know and, and and I always say that's the way to see it you you're feeling uncomfortable but actually what about the person that's actually living in that yeah. and so we rather than um just sitting and accepting the discomfort we've just got to be active in that discomfort and have those conversations and it's because when we also went trying to understand people and understand people's um, lived experiences, we may not have all the answers, but yeah. something active we can do is actively learn. Um, yeah. And it is this concept of, so we talk about um, cultural competency. So understanding a community and a culture and learning um, about that culture so that when we are asking, we can ask more sensitively and we can yeah. ask knowing someone's wider context. And I completely respect that um, concept and it, it, and it is crucially important. But there's a concept that, you know, has been there for many years, but is being talked about more, more and more is about cultural humility, which instead of cultural competency in acknowledging in that one time, and it's kind of a one time learning, actually cultural humility in humility in its true sense is 
constantly learning, constantly being humble to know that we you cannot fully understand someone's lived experience. You cannot step into their shoes and get it, but you can constantly reflect about your own learning, your own knowledge, and constantly um be active in understanding their life and understanding that in the same way that your life as as an individual is dynamic the person's life in front of you is dynamic and so and that cultural humility just is something really active that you can do and I guess if we took all our clothes off and you know died covered ourselves with paint and took away sexuality you know we, we all probably want very similar things in life don't we we all want love intimacy a house over our head food in our bellies i i always always say this i always say you know everyone wants to be loved everyone just wants to be shown kindness everyone wants to be seen you know um i i i I talk about um uh you know the term bame and how i feel about it and everyone has very different feelings about it and the, the the thing that i say is that it's not so much the term is that for me um as a black woman i often feel lost in bame because mm-hmm. I'm, if you would intentionally ask about what it's like to live as a black woman, um, and then what it's like to live as a South Asian woman, what it's like, you know, to live as a um, South Asian man, you know, et cetera, et cetera, then I wouldn't have a problem with the term. But when you don't actively and intentionally see my demographic, that's where the problem is. Because all, the, all we are as human beings is we want to be seen and we want mm-hmm. for someone to advocate for us um to acknowledge us and obviously have food <laughs> food in our bellies because that's <laughs> crucially important <laughs> myself yeah you know all of that and we want to be warm um and yeah. we want to be part of the conversation so we want wi-fi you know all of that we want very similar yeah. things in life so it's finding out what's unique i suppose about that person mm-hmm. it, it, exactly and just looking at an individual's li- lived experience what is how how is their life at, the, at this moment where does their diagnosis as we're talking about with hiv where does that sit in their life and what can we do to support and i and i think again because when you when you do that you get the right support and i I often talk about peer support. That has been a, a massive game changer in, in my day-to-day work, which I'm sure um, with yourself as well. Um, and it's about being able to say to someone, right, you're in a difficult, you're in a difficult space or actually you're in a good space, but you want someone to share what's going on with and what's happening. I may not be able to do as as much as I would like to in this consultation, but I've got a great organization that I'm working with that with great people that have similar lived experiences or shared vulnerabilities. They may not get it all, but they get, they may get aspects of your life that I don't get here you are. And and I think that's incredibly powerful. So Vanessa, we've we've had a good old chin wag. Can you sum up your what what are your most important messages or tips to the listeners? So when I often talk about um health equity, I kind of put it in four A's as kind of key steps to think about moving towards health equity. So first of all, um, acknowledge the inequalities. And we've been doing so much of that in the recent times, in the recent climate. Acknowledging is key. That's always the first step. And Mm -hmm. then 
also, particularly as uh, within our specialty, is about advocating for those affected by the inequalities and being proactive and intentional in doing that. And that then engenders that trust that we were talking about earlier. So for people to feel that they can open up to you and let them know what's going on in their life, whether it's drug and alcohol problems, whether it's um, domestic violence, other aspects, concerns about childcare, all of those advocating is really important because it lets it engenders trust amongst them but it also then the wider context in which people live in they they know that someone's advocating for them in those spaces as well so that's so important and and within that part of advocacy i would say about amplifying the message and um, the need to address them and then activating those that are affected by the inequalities so and you can that activation is by responding to the inequalities and not sitting in silence about it and doing something about it, but also working with those to say, how can I support you to feel more empowered, to have more of a voice, um, to articulate your concerns, articulate your needs so that whenever services research is being shaped, your voice is at the root of it. I love that. Thank you. I like an acronym. A A A A. I can remember. So do I. <laughs> makes life easier, you know. <laughs> and I think for me, for, from kind of everything we've talked about, is is just don't fear the differences. Don't fear the unknown. Broach them. You know, stick your big foot in it and apologize if it goes wrong. But just open up those conversations. So thank you ever so much for your time today, Vanessa. Um, if anyone wants to find you on social media, what is your handle? So, <laughs> you know <yeah>. it. <laughs> so my Twitter handle is um, at Vanessa underscore appear. Fabulous. Thank you ever so much for your time. It's been a, a total pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So thank you ever so much for listening to this episode of HIV in Focus. If you enjoyed it, do tune in to one of the other episodes from the series. HIV in Focus has been created and fully funded by Gilead Sciences. <laughs>